This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Hello and welcome to the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. I'm agronomist Brian Schrader on the east side of the state, joined as always by my co-host Ben Jacob from Southern Indiana. Good morning, Ben. Morning, Brian. Well, we have a uh, special guest today, Ben, that uh, we are going to talk about something that you and I uh, dabble in, but certainly are not experts. And so uh, when we got ready to talk about uh, silage, the growing season, forage harvesting, all of those things, we went out and we found the expert. And so we are privileged to have Dan Bollinger with us again. Dan was on the podcast, I think maybe a season or two ago, uh, talking about similar things. And so we wanted to get Dan back on and give us kind of an update and uh, talk through the growing season from the perspective of corn silage and forage management. And so welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be here, guys. So, Dan, I guess maybe let's start off for those that maybe didn't catch you the first time around on the podcast. Tell us uh, where you're at and, and uh, what you are doing or what you have done for uh, Pioneer in terms of our uh, dairy markets. Yeah, um, I am a, a, a displaced Purdue grad that is based out of Michigan and spend the majority of my time working in Michigan, but I also have responsibilities uh, in Ohio supporting Pioneer as it relates uh, to anything dairy and even beef related, uh, predominantly corn, as well as other forage products. And more recently, some of the the utilization of soybeans as the feedstuff. Okay. And we will definitely get into that because that is uh, something that uh, is becoming more and more, uh, I guess, talked about in uh, your dairy circles is the impact of plenish specifically and what it can do. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. So Dan, let's start kind of with the season. I know we talked before the podcast a little bit about just how far behind, maybe I'll say it, uh, the corn crop is. That's obviously going to have an impact from your side of the business on when the silage harvest starts and everything. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing. You evaluate the crop maybe in a little bit different way than what Ben and I do when we're talking about grain. I guess, is that from a silage standpoint, are we seeing that same behind uh, progress? And what's that going to do to the harvest window for us? Yeah, generally, we're looking at anywhere from around 10 to 14 days uh, on average behind schedule, it appears, and in, in, uh, when we're going to see silage harvest get underway and the bulk of the acres going to be chopped. Uh, how that really affects us, I think uh, it's really going to require us to have maybe a little more self-control than we normally have during the harvest window. And what I mean by that is we're going to, as an industry, we're collectively going to be a little more anxious to get out in the field. And there is some biological and also some economic risks that come with entering the field too early. Um, you know, I think historically we've understood that if you, you bring it in too wet, you can have some fermentation challenges. Uh, easily getting into the wrong bacteria that are dominating fermentation, a little bit higher acetic acid and some other undesirables that could occur in the pile. Uh, that typically happens when you're below 32% dry matter, maybe even a little bit uh, closer to 35 when we're dealing with some of the healthy genetics that we have now out there in the field today. Uh, but more recently, we've recognized that we're also making a, a pretty significant economic sacrifice if we enter the field too early. And we could really benefit from um, 
more timely managing when we enter the field, and then also recognizing that the patience uh, of leaving it there uh, can really capture a lot of yield and quality uh, as we get out there. And, and in the last year or so, we've been able to put some numbers to that. Well, I know, Dan, it's been a few years ago now, but we started to talk a little bit about how to evaluate the harvest window in a little bit different way than what had traditionally been done. Can you talk to us a little bit about, I don't want to necessarily say it was a philosophy change, but I know that it was a different way of thinking about that. And so can you talk to us kind of, I guess, if you want to call it the pioneer system, can you talk to us about how we evaluate that now or think about it a little bit differently? Yeah, and I'll just quickly give a brief history of how we've historically timed silage harvest. Uh, back 30, 40 years ago, uh, back when I was young and, and working on the farm, normally uh, you could identify when it was time to chop without even leaving your pickup truck. Uh, you drove by a field when it was fired up to the ear, it was time to go. Um, then we got in the late 80s, early the 90s, and then it was recognized that, hey, maybe we need to look at milk line. And the industry embraced half milk line as the target for maturity for putting up corn silage. And then as we moved into the late 90s into the 2000s, it shifted to whole plant dry matter. And I just made reference to that a moment ago. And and that's still pretty important to this day, uh, particularly for managing the fermentation side of things. Uh, But more recently, uh, we've recognized that we're having a lot healthier plants out in the field. We have... Uh, particularly pioneer genetics uh, carry a lot of plant health with them and then you combine that with some of our management practices with fertility and fungicides uh, we have the opportunity to allow the kernel to get a little more mature and capture more starch and that also equates to more tonnage without sacrificing fiber digestibility and the moisture that we need uh, for fermentation as well as the sugars and what that means is that whole plant dry matter maybe isn't as critical as it used to be because we can have a lot more dry matter tied up in the kernel than we historically have in the moistures carried in the stalk. And that gives us a a higher dry matter content, but still more than enough moisture uh, for packing as well as for ensiling and the sugar that we need for ensiling. So what that, that translates into from a practical basis, I use the guideline of I want my corn for silage harvest to have the most mature kernel possible while I still have enough plant health and moisture uh, to support uh, packing and processing and and uh, holding up for fermentation and, and maintaining fiber digestibility. Uh, that typically runs around three-quarter milk line when we have healthy plants, at least that we see in the field today. Um, and to give you an idea of the economic punch of that, it, it's... You know, if we can allow a healthy plant that's maturing naturally, not due to disease or drought stress or heat stress, if it's just maturing naturally, if we can allow it to mature, let's say on average five points more. So instead of 32% dry matter, we'll take it at 37. Or I've even seen scenarios where we can go, for instance, from 37 up to 42 and still have a great silage crop. And moving it just those five points gains us about one and a half tons of yield per acre. Wow. Uh, that equates to about 25 bushel to the acre, uh, three points of starch in the feed analysis. And we've really only given up maybe, depending on the health of the plant scenario, uh, maybe one point of fiber digestibility. And starch digestibility, the, what we sacrifice there is inconsequential because after fermentation with good processing, those differences are effectively nullified. 
Um, and, and it's really exciting that we can identify ways farms can increase yield, increase quality uh, without really doing any additional investment other than patience and managing the timing of the harvest. Yeah. So how do we coach that patience, Dan? I mean, obviously you got the money here. I guess my mind goes to the starch because, you know, the starch is kind of the secret sauce, if you will, for a lot of folks. Maybe talk to us about what, how do we be more patient and then maybe how that relates and how the starch is really one of the big keys to this whole idea or system that we're talking about. Yeah, well, well, it's fairly easy to put the economics to that, you know, as far as, you know, if you just use the thumb rule of, you know, you could gain potentially 25 bushel of the acre. The math's pretty straightforward. Uh, gaining the patience, that might be a little more challenging uh, <laughs> as, as we're dealing with the folks out in the field. Uh, one of the tools that we've developed and are now refining at Pioneer to help with this is what we're, we're deeming the, the silage staging uh, reports that we're generating out of Pioneer and Granular Insights. Uh, I've been utilizing them for a, a couple years now, but we're now broadening them out to other geographies in the U.S. And what that is, is that if we have three pieces of information for a farm's fields, and that includes uh, georeferencing, so basically field boundaries, planting date, and the Pioneer-specific hybrid, we, with, with uh, quite surprising accuracy, uh, assuming a healthy plant, can pretty reliably predict when we're going to reach harvest timing for silage around that three-quarter milk line. Um, I was involved in, in uh, developing this and capturing some of the field data to, to test it and develop it. And I'll be honest, going into it, I wasn't terribly uh, positive about whether we'd be able to do this remotely. Uh, it has been surprisingly good. Uh, and what, what we've been able to do with that is, you know, the obvious thing is, yeah, we can tell you when it's time to chop, but that's actually the least useful piece of information from that report. Because the old thumb rule that's been around forever of, you know, when you see the tassels six to seven weeks, it's time to chop, that's, that still gets you about in the ballpark to this day. And, and that's still a pretty reliable method of accomplishing that. And, and these reports are, are going to be similar to that. But what we gain in that is how we manage going from one field to the next, particularly in farms that have a large number of fields to manage. Uh, this will identify what field to chop in what order. And, and that it has an, a lot of value when we're dealing with a large number of fields because um, as much as I wanna say that, hey, you get to a field and it turns out, hey, we're not ready to chop this yet, that's not how life works. Uh, right. When the chopper operator goes in a field, he starts chopping and says, hey, this is a little wet more than likely the the uh, response is going to be but i'm here now i'm just going to go and that can be a significant uh, missed opportunity and economic benefit from gaining from that starch content and the additional yield that comes from that um, those reports also identify gaps in the harvest uh, window as far as if you have fields that are really early and some that are real late and some in the middle you don't know what you know or none in the middle that would be a challenge uh, and it gives you weeks notice to know what, you know, to come up with a plan of what you're going to do about that. Uh, whether you're going to cover a pile, then uncover it, whether you're going to harvest the first half really slow and harvest the last half a little early and hope they bump into each other. Um, or what some farms do, the more ideal is a plan to have a second pile uh, so that you put the early corn silage in one and the late corn silage in another, uh, just so you can get it up more timely. And then also recognizing that sometimes we have bottlenecks where every acre is ready at the exact same time. Uh, 
And we have had real life scenarios where farms were able to recognize that weeks in advance. And, you know, maybe for one week out of the harvest, they're going to be way behind and they line up a custom harvester to help them for at least a portion of their harvest. And they have enough advance notice to do that. And, and that can really pay significant economic dividends as far as the yield and the, and the starch that is gained from being able to be more timely in that harvest. Yeah, I know uh, several years ago, we had a graphic within Pioneer where we took a number of years and essentially showed how quickly the harvest window was based on the environment and everything. And I think a tool like this, that helps flatten that line almost, if you will. It doesn't extend the harvest necessarily, but it also it helps you manage it to know the right thing uh, to do and how to manage that as it comes out of the field. I guess to that point, Dan, what's your expectations with being as far behind as we are looking at the weather? My gut would tell me that we might see a longer harvest window, but based on the data that you're actually seeing coming out of the tool, what what do you expect to see? Uh, I think we're going to see a stretched out harvest. Uh, depending on where you're at, obviously, planning dates and, and the localized weather, you know, we're looking at getting going sometime in early September to the middle of September, and that's going to drag on for, for a lot of people even into October. Okay. Um, and, and I think a lot of that's going to be a combination of, you know, the, the lower GDU accumulation through the entire growing season, but especially the later you get into the fall, as you well know, uh, we're not we're not racking up those GDUs on a daily basis as much as we were earlier. So yep. I, I think that's going to stretch it out. The model, you know, when I look at it summarily across all the acres in the system uh, regionally here, uh, it's it's pretty heavy for about a three week period. We don't have a peak like we traditionally do uh, okay. wherever where all the acres are going to be kind of crunched together. It's spread out almost an entire month this go around. Okay. Wow. That, that does seem a little bit unusual to me. I obviously don't have or work with as many, uh, silage producers as you do, but I know in this part of the world to have that much of a length on the season is very unusual. So you had mentioned as we were talking about this a little bit about, you know, a naturally maturing product without disease or drought stress or those kind of things. I want to circle back around on that. We obviously had some challenges in June uh, with dry weather, at least in the part of the world that's represented on our conversation between what you cover and what Ben and I cover. What do you expect or do you think we should consider the impact of that dry June in terms of uh, what we get for forage yield or for quality? Yeah, I think it's going to have some impact, obviously. Uh, uh, regarding yield, uh, typically when we have those dry periods during vegetative growth, we're going to have reduced plant stature. Um, and, I, and I think you, you could probably verify that if you're out looking at your fields. And that obviously will take a little bit of a hit on the tonnage, but simultaneously that's probably going to bump up your starch percentage as as we go into the harvest window you know as long as you still have a pretty good grain yield which i anticipate we probably will uh, i think we'll actually may have a little bit higher starch content as a result of that even though the tonnage might be a, a little bit off pace at least what we might expect if the plants are taller uh, the other piece of the quality equation with regard to drier conditions during vegetative growth is that typically results in higher fiber digestibility so anytime the plant is stressed during vegetative growth, 
you end up not laying down as much lignin and other uh, cellulitic compounds that reduce fiber digestion or at least inhibit it. Then, then we end up with uh, that playing out through the entire growing season and enhancing fiber digestibility come harvest time. So I would anticipate at least average or above average fiber digestibility as well as starch content and, and maybe a, a little bit of a hit to yield, especially from the lower fodder content in those fields that might be shorter than normal. Okay. Well, talking about uh, short, obviously a big thing in the industry right now uh, being talked about is reduced statured corn. I know that, uh, you know, we are obviously doing some research uh, on our own. Uh, talk to us a little bit, just out of curiosity here, what's your thoughts uh, from a forage standpoint for reduced statured corn? Uh, I think we're going to have to really evaluate it. I don't know if we're to that point in the game yet. Uh, some of the uh, initial analysis uh, suggests there might still be some opportunity for silage with reduced stature, but there's a lot to, of unknowns that we have yet to to resolve with regard to that. So I, I think that's one we'll just have to wait and see how that impacts silage. Um, I, I'm not, you know, just off the cuff, I, I've, I'm not excited about being able to maintain uh, the fiber yields uh, with reduced stature, but I, but I don't think that necessarily uh, precludes us from, you know, looking into that for at least some of the silage production out there. Sure. And, and, you know, your, your comment that we're still very much in the evaluation um, we've proved the concept, I think is probably one of the best ways to say it, Ben, from both a grain standpoint, um, or I guess rather from the grain standpoint, but I think we do still have a lot of work to do to evaluate this and kind of decide. And I think frankly, the industry's got a little bit of work yet to do to kind of decide where they're going to go. You know, one of the questions that I have is how much of the, uh, corn producing world decides to go reduce stature versus, uh, continue with what more traditional ideas of corn production look like. And so, uh, just was curious about that, Dan, only because folks are, you know, asking questions all around about what that looks like as we move forward. Yeah. I, I think a lot of us are sharing those questions and sure. it'll be fun to find out what direction we end up and where, where the adoption rate lands on those products. Yep. Well, the other thing to uh, talk about tar spot and uh, some of our diseases, depending on where we're at geographically, uh, gray leaf spot became more of a problem. Uh, tar spot maybe not as heavy as it has been in the past, but uh, given where a lot of our uh, dairy producers that you work with uh, live and farm, I know that's been a concern. That certainly impacts quality in a lot of different ways. What's your observations of tar spot in 2023, uh, maybe compared to the last handful of seasons that you've seen this disease start to develop? And then what kind of impact or what considerations should growers use if they are in an area where tar spots maybe been a little bit heavy? Yeah. I in general or on average, tar spot hasn't seemed to uh, be as much of a concern this year uh, in most places. And you gentlemen can comment on specific geographies you work in if need be. But uh, I, I think from a silage standpoint, we're getting close enough to harvest now that there's really not much we can do management wise uh, due to the pre-harvest intervals on fungicides. I think we're pretty well past the opportunity to add fungicide to our repertoire this year. So it's really a matter of monitoring it. 
the biggest concern we have with tar spot and silage, if it does suddenly come on, and in the past, uh, such as in 2021, it was pretty abrupt uh, that we had a lot of corn that, that basically lost its green, if you will, uh, very rapidly in a matter of days. And if we were to get in that position again, which at this point, I'm not sure we will this year, uh, it, it's mainly a matter of monitoring it closely. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, when we're when we're looking for harvest timing, assuming a healthy plant, you know, that's looking at three quarter milk line. But if we start losing uh, plant health due to an overwhelming disease pressure that even uh, our, our best tolerance, our best fungicide practices, you know, don't always hold up if we have extreme pressure, uh, then it's a matter of just trying to stay ahead of that dry down where we can lose too much moisture and fiber digestibility if we can't keep ahead of it. Um, so now it's just a matter of just keeping an eye on the crop. And if if we see tar spot specifically starting to explode, if you will, in the, in the countryside, uh, then we need to maybe be ready to go a little bit sooner than we were anticipating. Okay. And, and I guess to that point, fungicide application, certainly uh, pre-harvest interval is always an important consideration with that. I'm assuming that not only is it agronomically not make sense in a lot of cases with these things, but the pre-harvest interval on most fungicides, I would guess, precludes it from being a viable option for most forage producers. It's just too close to the harvest window. Would that be accurate? Well, at this stage of this growing season, yes. Uh, over the last couple of years, uh, I've conducted along with some cooperators and others uh, within Pioneer some some fungicide trials, specifically looking at effects on corn for silage. Mm -hmm. And we had data from from the most severe year in 2021, which gave us some moderate and, and really extremely high pressure scenarios to evaluate. And then last year, and we have some in the field this year to look at lower pressure scenarios. And we learned quite a bit from those those trials. And and the one takeaway based on the very limited data that's out there, and to be frank, I'm, I don't believe there's any uh, really uh, solid data beyond what we've collected within Pioneer looking at fungicide on, on corn silage uh, relative to looking at interval harvesting. And, and I could go into that if necessary, but it's basically recognizing that the crop changes over time through the harvest window and evaluating that change. Uh, because your conclusions can be different from depending on when you just happen to harvest it within its maturity. Sure. And what we've learned from these trials is uh, even in the absence of visible disease pressure, uh, we gained roughly a half a ton of yield per acre with fungicide. Okay. And that's predominantly in fodder, but also in grain. Um, and from that, that's, a, that's about enough to cover costs of application. And okay. then when we when we count backwards from that pre-harvest interval, what we would like to avoid doing is if we know we have disease pressure, we put a fungicide on, which is typically depending on the product, about three weeks, maybe four. Um, then, then if we have to honor that pre-harvest window, which we should, there might be a situation where we have one to two weeks of no protection from the fungicide. So we've generally gone to the recommendation, counting backwards from harvest timing, two applications also happens to fall around VTR1. Okay. And that's when all our trials were conducted on silage. So based on what we know today, we think there are some benefits to putting fungicide on uh, in most scenarios um, in corn silage around VTR1 and then using 
uh, if you will, scout and spray approach, whether or not you want to put on a second application. Uh, And and that seems to make a lot of sense uh, simply because the other thing that plays into this is independent of yield in in any kind of disease pressure scenario, that fungicide either uh, increased the harvest window number of days by half again or even doubled under high pressure scenarios, which has a tremendous value in and of itself. And that's something we picked up by having the the situation where we harvested these strips every two to three days. We harvested again each application so we could get trend lines. And that really showed that the benefit of the fungicide increased the further we got into the harvest window. Okay, that's that's really impressive. I mean, obviously, for a lot of our growers, uh, at least in my geography, where we don't see a lot of pressure, whether it's, uh, you know, our our dairymen or our forage producers or our our grain farmers that really is kind of the timing is that vtr1 where most folks are aiming for anyway and then like you say if we end up with a disease late and our protection from our fungicide applications started to wane a bit we look at those second applications it's uh interesting that you all are seeing the same type of uh increase that uh, we expect to see from the grain side as well shouldn't I guess shouldn't surprise me. It's just not something that I necessarily thought about either, Dan. So um, I guess let's talk a little bit then about you had mentioned it uh, when you were talking at the opening of the podcast about the changes in Plenish uh, and what it's doing for the dairy market. Um, I guess talk to us a little bit about that. I know it's certainly an exciting thing. Uh, not something that uh, when the product initially came out, it was a consideration. You know, we were really focused on the food market at that point. So how did this idea of Plenish in the dairy market develop and where where are we at with it at this point, Dan? Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. Um, the idea of high oleic uh, feedstuffs in dairy is actually not new. Um I, I did a real quick uh, search, uh, didn't spend a lot of time, didn't take me very long to identify that even back in the late 80s, there was work with high Lake sunflowers uh, fed to dairy cattle, a South Dakota State University trial back then, that gave very similar results to what we're seeing with high Lake soybeans today. Uh, I think more than likely the reason it didn't catch on back then is the availability of high Lake sunflowers wasn't exactly that great. Sure. Um, and then when we got into the present day in the last decade, we've had available a more economical, more reliable source of high lake uh, commodity in plenish beans in particular. And that kind of changed up the opportunity. And I'm not sure how many people were even thinking about it at the time, uh, but in the Eastern Pennsylvania in particular, that is a section of the, of the country where a practice that used to be extremely common almost anywhere dairy cattle were found uh, remains to this day, and that is the idea of a of a business of a traveling soybean roaster mm-hmm. that goes from farm to farm and and custom roasts uh, the farm's own soybeans to to roast them for a feedstuff. And that practice has been maintained in that part of the dairy industry in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the challenges with feeding commodity soybeans is because of the high linoleic uh, acid or, or fatty acid content of a commodity bean, which is the same profile roughly of corn, by the way, 
uh, is that if you feed more than maybe four to five pounds per cow per day, and maybe even less than that in a high corn diet, you're going to see some butterfat depression in the milk. And that can have some economic consequences. And I, I don't know the details of how it came about, but basically the idea of, hey, we have high oleic over here, which infers low linoleic. And then we have this, this potential challenge that is brought on by feeding these commodity soybeans. Uh, some farms began to experiment with the idea of, hey, let's use high oleic soybeans, the plenish beans uh, in our system that they're already operating. And they had some on-farm, some anecdotal observations that were extremely positive. Uh, increases in butterfat content on a percentage basis in their milk. Some of them saw some milk response in and of itself, you know, the overall volume and yield of milk. And that got the attention of some in academia there was a Penn State trial, in, I believe it was 2007. There was another one that was published at the University of Wisconsin in 2008. Both of those saw milk fat uh, improvements uh, utilizing plenish soybeans. Uh, both those trials left some question marks. Um, so, you know, there wasn't a wide adoption out of the eastern U.S. in the meantime. Uh, it did expand a little bit. Uh, the Pennsylvania and New York dairy industries have uh, really embraced it in many regards as far as the idea of feeding plenish soybeans. Uh, but the rest of the United States, it's kind of been hit or miss. Uh, you know, I've worked with a handful of farms that have done it in the meantime, but haven't really seen it catch on. Uh, and frankly, I haven't really been promoting it myself either. And then here in the last nine months, a a trial out of Michigan State University came out um, that was looking at different inclusion rates of roasted, uh, whole, full fat, plenish soybeans, and those results were much more positive than I think uh, at least anyone in my circles anticipated and saw some significant benefits in milk production, uh, fat yield, as well as fat percentage and feed efficiency, uh, the more the beans that you put into the diet. And uh, a lot of that was a combination. Well, in that particular study, it was strictly being able to have more energy in the diet without necessarily increasing uh, the dry matter intake required to get there, which is a, a huge plus. Uh, so we're shifting away from the linoleic, the, the polyunsaturated fatty acids in the diet that actually uh, oftentimes in high inclusion rates result in butterfat depression. And we're putting oleic fatty acid in there, which is one that doesn't have those negative consequences. And we can pull out of the diet protein supplements, such as the obvious one is soybean meal, but maybe canola meal or whatever a farm may use as an ingredient, and also pull out possibly some other energy sources such as corn, um, as well as fat uh, additives, which can be very costly on a pound-for-pound okay. pound basis. So it it's a, it's a double benefit. Uh, on one side, it, on most farms, it reduces feed costs. And then also potentially gives a, a cow performance response. And it's really caught a lot of people's attention uh, in the last uh, nine months, roughly. And uh, there's a lot of interest, not just amongst dairy farms, but especially among dairy nutritionists, as whether or not this is an opportunity to have a on-farm or locally grown feedstuff that can reduce costs and, and give some significant benefit. Okay. So a question around the butterfat piece, Dan, Art, you had mentioned we've seen a depression in butterfat content. Um, is So is the plenish getting it back up to a uh, historical trend line, or are we actually seeing an increase in butterfat with the plenish? Uh, and then I guess that for the uninitiated, talk to us a little bit about why butterfat is, is important. 
Well, butterfat's important because it, it is, you know, at least currently and in recent years, the, the, the one of the single largest determinants of how much money a dairy farmer receives for their milk. Sure. So it has significant economic consequences. Um, as far as the butterfat depression, many farms are not dealing with butterfat depression, in fact. Um, okay. Because there are other ways to manage it. You know, there aren't that many farms that are feeding whole soybeans currently. Okay. Uh, for that very reason, among others. Uh, but it is something that nutritionists have to manage closely. Uh, if we have a lot of corn in the diet, uh, we have to try to, as best we can, uh, manage the linoleic, in particular, acid level in the diet. Uh, I believe the ratio is for every 100 grams per cow per day, you can reduce linoleic acid in the diet. Uh, the summary of data shows that you gain a tenth of a point of butterfat percentage. Uh, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that economically can add up if we can sure. add a few points there. So there's two potential benefits. If you do happen to have depression, the plenish beans should relieve that if you're substituting out some of the linoleic for oleic. Okay. Uh, but if you don't currently have butterfat depression, you have the opportunity to put more oil or fat in the diet without depressing it. So you, so okay. you can have a higher fat diet without the negative consequence. So I think that's where most of the opportunity lies uh, in the dairy industry in the central and western Great Lakes. And I think that combining that with potentially lower cost of feed, purchase feeds in particular, I think that's that's the other piece of the equation. Okay. All right. Um, ben, you know, we, we've talked, we don't have that many, you and I at least, uh, dairy farms that we work with. Uh, but I think I don't want folks that maybe are listening to the podcast who aren't uh, forage producers to think that, you know, some of the things that Dan's talking about relate to us as well. Uh, you know, for the folks that aren't involved, you know, the plenish piece obviously is becoming larger. There may one day be a market that develops specifically for uh, this opportunity. And so we want folks to be aware that this may be a market that emerges uh, as we move forward. And so that's certainly important. Uh, as well. And then I think the other thing, obviously, is that we're in some places that do have large dairies that may not be able to produce all the corn that they need. And so there's a possibility of, you know, some opportunity for folks there. I know in a lot of my geography, those relationships have been worked out, but in certain years, uh, you need to have somebody maybe on the, uh, you know, available to be able to reach out to and get some more acres. And so while you may not necessarily be directly producing the milk, you do have potentially some connection there to your local uh, dairy farm and what they may need. I, I don't know, maybe you're, you don't see the same thing, but I know that's certainly the way it works in my geography. No, I would agree. And I think that most of, most of my silage acres, um, honestly, they're, they're for beef from the West side of the state. I mean, the, the, the number of dairies that have, have dropped significantly over the past 10 years. But I do think that it's, uh, there, there are some interesting management comments in there. I'm surprised at the, uh, at the benefit of a fungicide and potentially a second one um, when sometimes, you know, and, and, and it makes sense. I can rationalize it with the, with harvesting the whole plant, but sometimes, you know, we're still, we're, we're still at a, in a year like this where disease pressure is low back and forth. Do we spray? Don't we spray? Did we make the decision right either way? Um, but I think the, the plenish, the plenish conversation is really, is really interesting. And I would be curious, you know, 
well, we don't have a ton of dairies. We do have we do have a ton of livestock overall, and I'd be curious and changing the the fat profile of the input, um, how that how that could impact something like pork production or or even even something here at home. If I'm being selfish, as as um, as my kids raise show lambs, and there are some breeds that are it's difficult to get a good hard fat cover on them. They want they want to handle pretty soft. You know, is there is there room to change the the fat profile of the food source and and change the way even a 4-H lamb handles? So it's it's a really interesting conversation, um, even outside of the narrow scope of, of of milk production. So yeah, quite interesting, and I think that that folks will find some overlap for sure. Sure. Dan, what do you expect the future of Plenish uh, within the forage space in terms of, I mean, do you know of ongoing uh, research at Michigan State and other universities that are continuing to look at this? Or is this basically, uh, I guess, maybe a solved issue that this is the direction that we're headed? Uh, there's still a lot of of questions that people are asking as far as how to utilize it and its potential economic and physiological impact as far as benefiting animal performance. But um, in the meantime, there's there's enough positive information there that a lot of folks are moving forward with trying to incorporate this into their management systems. Um, you know, what I alluded to earlier was mostly revolving around feeding full fat the whole entire bean, uh, but there's also uh, and roasting them. There's also some work looking at whether or not you have to roast them. Uh, that is the general belief, and I think it's probably going to end that way, but most of that data is pretty old uh, that says sure. you need to roast them. Uh, some of that's being revisited. Uh, the other piece of it that we haven't mentioned is the idea of taking out some of, but not all of the fat. Uh, okay. So there be an expeller plant, for instance, versus a facility that is using the hexane extraction method of oil out of soybeans. So, you know, for those that may not be familiar in your audience, that when you send beans to a typical crush plant, uh, by the time you're done, the soybean meal has less than 1% fat in it. Yeah. Um, and they get that last bit of fat, the last maybe 7 to 9% of the fat out using hexane and chemically extracting it. There are facilities out there that do not have that last step. So their soybean meal is referred to as an expeller meal, and they leave 7 to 9% of the fat in it. And where that plays into this high lake plenish scenario for an animal feed is that a soybean meal from an, a hexane-based plant, soybean meal, soybean meal, whether it's plenish or not, it's yep. the same, going to have the same nutritional attributes, but the expeller meal will have some of this beneficial uh, high oleic content in it. And that is another approach that I, I think as time goes on is beginning to become more and more popular, more and more available uh, high oleic expeller meals from different sources. Uh, there's already a few facilities in the eastern U.S. that are doing it. Uh, there is a large facility that is beginning to at least play with it a little bit uh, in Wisconsin and Michigan. And there may be other facilities that pop up uh, across the region. Sure. I, I know that, you know, there's, this is essentially the chemical processing versus the cold press processing is essentially kind of what Dan's describing here. And so as we got into Plenish, there was a lot of, you know, discussion about uh, small specialty markets that were using the, the cold press um, process in order to make oil and kind of uh, boutique oil. I think it was referred to at different times and things like that. So, so Dan, I guess as we kind of start to close things, 
maybe uh, two or three actionable steps that you are talking through uh, with the producers that you work with directly, maybe as we start to approach harvest, but uh, know that we're maybe a little bit behind any recommendations that uh, you are giving those guys as they approach that window. Uh, the number one thing as we approach corn silage harvest is have patience and it's going to be hard. We're gonna have to watch weather. Uh, if we have a wet fall, uh, that will not be pleasant um, for a, lot, a number of reasons, obviously, but especially for silage. Um, you know, we need some GDUs, uh, so we need some warm weather and maybe some drier weather uh, so that we can get into that harvest window. But but practice patience as best you can manage that around the logistics and the practical scenarios, of course. And I think that's probably the single best benefit uh, that can help any grower out there producing silage. Okay. Uh, we did mention the uh, granular silage timing tool. I know maybe a little bit late in the season to start uh, monitoring that, but uh, can you talk us through maybe if a grower has some interest potentially maybe for the 24 season where they would start in terms of uh, getting on or utilizing that tool? Yeah, well, well obviously, talk to your pioneer sales professional and and work with them uh you know basically we're going to need some as planted data uh machine data is obviously easier to get into the system versus manually entering it but it can be manually manually entered for this purpose um and just work ahead of time so that we can hopefully have that uh, information into the granular system by the middle of the summer uh, so these ports typically start getting generated about a month before we anticipate silage harvest okay uh, so you know, that's something to look forward to for particularly for 2024 for those that aren't able to utilize it this go around. Yeah, and Ben, I've seen some of those reports. Uh, don't have any producers that I work with directly uh, using those, but I have seen seen some of those reports, and it it's very impressive what the information that they are sharing. And I I agree with Dan. It's it's even more beyond just hey, here's the date to to go harvest. That has really been impressive to me in the the few reports that I've seen there. So I don't know. Do you have any producers that are using that uh, in your geography? No, I don't. Like I mentioned, I mean, my, my silage market is very, sure. very small on, on, especially on the west side of the state. It could be more in southeastern Indiana for sure, but I mean, sounds promising. Yep. Well, Dan, we appreciate your time today. I know that uh, you have a, a Twitter feed that you will occasionally post some things on. If uh, somebody wanted to follow around or maybe you've piqued their interest uh, on uh, being patient or uh, you know some of the new ways that we're evaluating how to harvest, how can they uh, get a hold of you or maybe follow along with what's going on? Well, I have to apologize. I have not much of a Twitter person here of late anymore so okay I, uh they're they're better off if they want to interact with me they're welcome to uh work through you gentlemen or through their sales rep and uh they can reach out to me via phone text email uh i would be happy to to engage with anyone that might want to uh, discuss any topic related to silage and forages all right great and uh ben if somebody uh heard something or maybe they've got some questions for dan and want to go through you how can they do that yeah absolutely you can find me on x formerly Twitter, um, uh, that's right. at, at the Ben Jacob and on Facebook at Ben Jacob Agronomy. How about you, Brian? 
Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at B underscore K underscore Schrader or certainly at uh, my Pioneer email, brian.schrader at uh, pioneer.com. So, Dan, we we certainly appreciate your time today. Uh, It's always a pleasure, and I always learn something about the forage production when we're visiting. Uh, You're the reason that I look even remotely like I'm qualified to talk about silage. And so I appreciate uh, you being with us today. And, uh, again, thank you for joining us for the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode with Dan Boeing, our dairy specialist. If you've got any questions, certainly please reach out to us, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.